Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is episode 11, Burner Phone. Welcome to an episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you doing this fine Saturday afternoon? I'm pretty well rested. I don't know about you, but uh, it feels like these last uh, couple of weeks I've just been exhausted. And so I, I caught up on a little bit of sleep. I did the same thing. I slept in today, which I usually don't do. I'm up pretty early. It's weird. The last couple of weeks, like you said, I haven't been sleeping well because I've had so much on my plate. And I, it's it started to aggravate me more the stress of knowing I'm not sleeping because I read that book, why we sleep and all the damage that lack of sleep does to you. So now I've become paranoid about it. So it it makes me sleep even less, but today I feel good. Like a, a spry fall chicken. Let's go with that. So we have a few things on our plate. Sorry, I keep going. Yeah, no worries. Uh, it's interesting because especially with the, us just working at home, like I, I find the days are a bit of a blur as well. Well, it's an interesting thing you point out because I find what I'm not good at, as much as I like working at home, is I'm not very good at the separation of work life. Like I don't mind putting in the time, but usually even if I worked a long day at the office at the university, I tried to make... Uh, a concerted effort by the time I got home to just shut it down so I would be, you know, rested for the following day because I'm not effective. But now I, I don't know, I have to put like caution tape around my office or something and make it like a physical barrier because I can't really tell the difference between my personal life and work, but I'm getting better. So should we get into our EdTech office hours? Sure. So our question today is what is the best online collaboration whiteboard software? So I used a few of these, but I don't use them in my library instructions super often. So we have a few that we're going to discuss. And I think Chris, you're going to end up talking about all of them because I don't really know which one is better. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I I've used, um, and actually it was interesting because this question came up in a meeting last week where uh, some of the instructors, because here at U of C, there are some in-person classes and they were talking about from social distancing standpoint. So we're in the classroom, we still got to maintain social distancing, but we want to have the students collaborate and how could we do that? And so some people were thinking of maybe uh, just doing some something in Zoom and just re- running remote sessions that way while in the classroom. And uh, I don't know, it seemed a little bit counterintuitive to me. But um, anyways, uh, one of the things that I started suggesting to them is maybe that they might want to consider using some whiteboard technology. And so two that I've used um, in my design thinking course this past uh, uh, summer, spring, summer, was uh, Miro and Mural. And so both of them are probably the leading ones out there. And then there's another one that... uh, especially for those that are using the G Suite, so the Google Suite. Uh, Jamboard is a free one that you can go and use. And, um, you know, maybe I'll just start running through like with Mural first. So I find uh, Mural's uh, user interface is really easy to navigate. It makes sense. It allows you to go and have free guests. 
so the user management is a little bit easier than what Miro has. Um, just in terms of the overall, uh, the navigation and that kind of thing, there is a learning curve for both of them, for Mural and Miro. Um, on the flip side, I think uh, Mural it just seems a little bit more weighty as of an application. From, uh, so you might experience some performance issues. If you're going to try to, especially if you're doing like wireframing, which most instructors probably aren't doing, but if you're in the comp sci field, you might need to. Uh, it's not as easy to go and start putting some of those things together. And so there's, a, you know, I think the only big issue is just the performance lag that sometimes just, uh, you know, if they maybe, and now Murals raised a lot of money uh, with their next round. So hopefully they'll be able to improve some of that, but just better zooming, handling of multiple objects, posts, selection, exporting of regions. Uh, you know, they've actually assembled a, a number of templates that um, in their library as well. So that's kind of nice. On the Miro side of things, uh, I find it seems to be a lot faster. Uh, so speed-wise, uh, performance seems better than Mural. Uh, there are some uh, nice kind of third-party plugins that you can go and uh, use for uh, integration. So for example, Zapier, uh, you can actually go and have some Zapier integration. Uh, I find it seems to be very easy to create some flow uh, with arrows and other things for options to customize. Um, you can go and have multiple working areas on one canvas. You can go and uh, export that. I mean, you can do this in Mural as well. Like you can actually export it as a PDF or uh, that kind of thing. And uh, you can actually wireframe components right in Mural. Uh, so, you know, I think that way it, it seems to be better. You have the capacity to hold large audiences without that lagging. Um, and then on the con side of things, uh, it seems to be a little bit more learnability requirements on, uh, on Miro than Mural. Um, some of the icons might not be as clear. Uh, you can't track across the screen as easily when you're actually viewing it. And so... It, Again, like I mentioned, it's a, it's a bit of a learning curve that way. So, um, you know, I, I would probably try experimenting with it. The nice thing is with uh, Miro as an educator, and you should probably check with your institution, but uh, they do give educator um, free account where you can go up to 100 users. And with Mural, I believe it's something like 10. And so that's the big kind of difference. But you can go and invite guests as opposed to having actual members um so you know that's one thing to kind of consider and you should probably check with your i uh, you know post-secondary institutions um it department because they might actually have enterprise licenses to one or the other but either way i would try it out experiment with it see if it makes sense and one of the things that i found with my students over the summer uh, they found it was uh, a lot of you know with all the different tools plus having to deal with um, you know personal work issues, there's a, now a, a huge learning curve uh, once you throw them into the mix with all these different tools. Uh, Jamboard is a lot easier to use, uh, so that's Google's, uh, but it doesn't have the same type of functionality. Um, it is very fast and quick. Uh, you can go and put together stickies and stuff, but it, you know, again, that's it's it's Google, so it's, it's one of those things where Google, they'll come up with some idea. They probably did it with their uh, one of their uh, free Friday kind of days uh, where they basically have 20% um, of the workforce 
or 20% of the work time is actually dedicated to passion projects. So I probably got rolled out of that and, uh, you know, they haven't developed the functionality to the, the extent of mural and mural. So, but all in all, it, again, it does allow you to have like live collaboration. And uh, even beyond that, one of the things that I suggested to my colleagues was maybe they should consider even just using, let's say Google, um, you know, sheets or docs just to collaborate slides. Uh, one of the things that I did this semester was uh, I actually, especially at Mount Royal, we are on G Suite. So I had the students go in for their team projects, actually use slides to create a uh, introduction team slide where I had them ask, uh, you know, answer some questions. They put together uh, a pretty much like a vision statement of their team, their team name, uh, along with pictures of themselves. And, you know, it was a good little break, um, breakout exercise for them. It's interesting you talk about Jamboard because I was playing around with it and it seems like it's a much better or it's much better suited to their Google hardware, the Jamboard, because I know you can draw and you can do things on it. But if you're using like a mouse, I guess it works better if you're on a tablet or some sort of touchscreen, but on a mouse, it's kind of janky. I was looking at the, um, the tool sets for Miro and Mural, and I like the fact that you can do these arrows and diagramming and stuff. One of the things that I've I've liked in the past, and it's not a very good collaboration tool, but is the uh, the Omni Group apps like OmniGraffle and stuff like that. So people who want to do wiring diagrams in engineering, but also educators who want people to do like mind maps. They're very expensive, high end apps. So if you're only using the basics, I like these options because it kind of replaces them, and they also do that diagramming and that arrowing which i really like because i've for like a virtual sticky note board for instance i've used things like padlet which work particularly well uh, padlet's a great collaboration tool for virtual sticky notes especially if you want to break out groups and stuff but and i think there is some templates to where you can do timelines and things like that but it's really not quite the same it seems like miro in particular from the speed, though I agree with you that the, the icons are not super intuitive. That was kind of my thought too. It seems like it has everything and it's pretty easy to learn. Yeah, I mean, with anything, any of these kind of tools, uh, the biggest uh, problem is just getting that adoption. And so as long as, uh, you know, the people that you're working with, so in this case, just students and the educators, if you have that buy-in, you should do pretty good. And uh, again, I, I think, you know, one of the feedback uh, items that I got because I didn't know what to do uh, for my course because uh, it was supposed to be in person and then we were having to do it uh, online. So I started exploring some uh, different tools and I probably shouldn't have given them every single tool. And now all of a sudden you had to, you know, try three different things. I mean, I, I was thinking about it for myself that it's, uh, you know, just giving them options and, you know, some of the templates actually were better in one platform versus the other. So I, I thought it would be a good idea. But again, you know, you got to kind of think about your audience and uh, for them, it was now all of a sudden learning two to three different new pieces of software. Yeah, you make a good point about simplicity. I guess, did you give the students a choice to choose whatever one they wanted, I guess? Yeah, no, for sure. I even told them they don't even have to go and use any type of software. 
right? Like literally, if you think about it now, uh, everybody in their pocket has a camera with their smartphone. So do something on paper and maybe that's that much faster for you. And then you can just take a picture and share it with the, your classmates. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, even creating little sketches and in some ways that's probably way faster. Although using some of this software, it just looks that much more polished and professional. Yeah, the examples that they have on the Miro website are pretty actually amazing. And they've, they've included, I see some of the hand diagrams, plus the arrowing and all the icons and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, for sure. So let's move on to our discussion item. So today our discussion item is mental health management more specifically in an online teaching environment. So I think uh, Chris and Christopher, our audio engineer, are gonna discuss this today. Yeah, so it's interesting. So uh, Christopher, who's our audio engineer, uh, he also happens to be a former student of mine and uh, currently he's a research assistant and also a teaching assistant for one of my courses. And one of the things that he told me is, why do you give out your personal cell phone number to all of the your students and maybe you want to tell them the, the, the conversation yeah so I guess um for perspective like those of you who wouldn't know Chris um and, and kind of how he teaches but he takes his teaching you know he really does it for the students and he's often stays after class to give some extra help and things like that so it's a he really goes out that, to that extra mile to give out his phone number so people kind of accessible. But you know, I was kind of at the point of, well, why would you give a bunch of students who may or may not be delinquents your phone number and kind of just you know let them go wild with that? So uh, the suggestion I had was to use Text Plus, and so this is the the platform that Chris is using, and he's had a pretty good uh, success with it, and he seems to be enjoying it. But there are tons of alternatives as well. Essentially, what it is is it's an app that lets you select your own phone number. Um, you can kind of go through that. You, you know, different freemium versions of whether or not it's an actual. Um, you know, whether or not you get the kind of actual selection that you want or if it's going to be kind of more general, kind of just whatever they assign to you. Um, but it allows for essentially free texting um, and free calling, uh, long distance and international as well, kind of similar to how Skype and kind of Google Hangouts used to have that as well. Um, and so TextPlus is the kind of premier um, version of this that was used um, even on the Apple iPhone under contacts like that's one of the kind of types of phone numbers that you can kind of select automatically but um, some of the other alternatives that are popular are kind of show up as well include text now um, cacao talk is out of China but it's very popular as well um, there's kick and next plus uh, talk a tone uh, there's um, telos just a ton of different ones that kind of uh, work for that and they don't only work on mobile platforms or like an iPad or iPod or whatever as well they actually show up um, on the PC um, and include things like uh, Kakao Talks actually available on both text now is available on the PC um, and you know there's tons of other ones but essentially that's where um, the idea for this kind of came from too I know back in my day um, when you know a lot of these uh, some of my peers in junior high or whatever they'd only have like their flip phone or whatever out of like, you know, on the, the on the phone card or out of like, you know, the 7-Eleven plans and stuff like that. So what they'd actually have is their iPod Touch. Um, they'd sync that to the school Wi-Fi, have this app, and then they'd be able to kind of have unlimited talking and texting um, for whatever they needed. So, you know, they could text their friends without their mom getting mad that they're using away all their emergency phone minutes from their phone card. So that's where I got 
kind of the idea and I said suggested that Chris kind of take it up on that and maybe even if he had an old iPod touch that that could be what he would use so um, yeah and I mean I thought about that as well as maybe uh, what I can do is have like a second like device maybe it's on um, an iPod touch or maybe an iPad or something where you can just have that separate and then you know be able to see it I mean I've been just doing it on my existing iPhone and it seems to be working fine but I mean as you mentioned too uh, uh, it's funny because in my first class whenever I, I, I start teaching because one of the things especially when you're uh, uh, teaching just part-time you have to be accessible and um, you know I, I always want to go and make sure that the students needs are addressed but at the same time in my first class I do also identify that uh, you know I'm a human being as well and to be considerate so don't be sending me messages uh, at all hours of the night or what have you although I mean I just turn off my phone anyways after a certain time but um, even on the weekends or uh, that kind of thing Actually, funny enough, I just had a student, uh, uh, and we're recording this over the weekend, but I had a student just contact me yesterday. But, you know, there's certain exceptions that I make, especially when there's an assignment due. And the, the Text Plus seems to be working fairly well. So I actually paid for the, the premium, like uh, to remove the actual um, ads in there. So it is free with ads, but then I paid the $7 to remove the ads, and it seems to be working a lot better. And earlier, just this past week, I also had um, a student that reached out, had questions uh, related to this project that's due this upcoming week. But then we also started chatting about um, just uh, career advice. And, uh, you know, this particular student wanted to know about a master's program. So we started chatting about that. And uh, it actually lasted, I, I think it was about maybe over an hour kind of conversation. And so uh, it seemed to be working well. I haven't paid for the outbound calls, so it's just inbound and just text messages. But it is kind of nice just to have that uh, delineation and separation that way. And so, and then if uh, every, anything ever goes awry, I can always just delete the app or you know create a new account or what have you. Yeah, no, exactly. I think you bring up a pretty good um point Chris where you know some of this can lead to conversations um, as opposed to an email it, it allows for that kind of quick question and answer um, and allow for that um, you know more casual feel which I think a lot of students appreciate um, and just kind of can keep your email down as well I think that's a huge win in a lot of cases um, though I guess you can kind of get you know these tam time vampires that you get on the other hand so uh, I, I, I don't know how great that is. Um, in terms of some of the cost for some of this other stuff, I mean, the uh, outgoing calls is about an additional 199 a month, um, from what I understand at the time of recording anyways. And so for a lot of this, it's from my perspective, if you do do an inter a lot of international calling, um, it might be a good alternative compared to even just getting that to your, on your regular mobile phone, just because that can cost a lot if you, um, we're in Canada, so if you do a lot of US-based calling or anything like that, um, it's probably going to cost quite a bit more. I think it's about 5 to $10 a month for most of the major providers. So this 199 is probably pretty decent um, in terms of that. I mean, the quality is, um, I, maybe you want to talk about that, but Chris, I know the quality isn't always great on some of the calling. You know, you can get a little bit of, it is um, internet dependent. Yeah, so. and and for the most part, I didn't really have any issues. Um, uh, obviously, I think right now, especially during the pandemic, there's just a high volume of usage, both on the cellular ne networks as well as the Internet. And so sometimes I think there's even if I'm just using my cell phone itself, I, I find sometimes there's like 
you know, drop calls or some issues that way. But um, I mean, I, I'm pretty happy so far. And uh, like you say, too, um, uh, I think from a student perspective, you have to keep in mind, like sometimes there's just something immediate and you can just get, you know, take care of it right away, uh, you know, and then especially in that medium of the the text message, you can't have a overly long, you know, um, uh, back and forth or what have you. So now you're restricted a little bit just from being more concise. And uh, funny enough, right now, while we're recording, I'm actually getting some text messages on the text plus. So, but, um, you know, I think the only kind of a one annoyance is that uh, sometimes if somebody does send a little bit of a longer message, it actually splits it up into multiple messages. Um, and then obviously another thing that always uh, is like a concern with text messages, especially if you're doing something else, like let's say I'm working on uh, a project or, you know, there's something that I'm, I'm dealing with and then, you know, you read the message. It's not like you can go and unread the text and then you have to kind of think about it. But at the same time, that's why I kind of like having this text plus being separate. And so then I can just go back if I do recall. And uh, again, like usually our turnaround time on the email side, and uh, I mean, I think you bring up a good point, Christopher, like the, on the email side, like I'm getting two to 300 emails a day right now. And, um, and I, I always tell the students too, this is that you should always put your course number and name in the subject line. Just based on that, that's how I prioritize responding back when it comes to emails. And it's the same thing with the text messages. I mean, if uh, somebody goes and messages, I don't have their phone number in their, in my um, actual directory or contact list. Uh, just identify it that way and then I can go from there. But uh, it seems to be, you know, from the student perspective, a lot of uh, the students, the feedback that I've gotten, because I also send out an interim kind of feedback uh, uh, survey to the students and they really appreciate it because it's uh, again now if there's something quick you know I'm accessible uh, I, they don't have to necessarily wait that 24 to 48 hours and then uh, and that's working hours right so if there's on the weekend it might even be you know you might miss like three days right before you get a reply back so yeah and I think from the student perspective too like um it's a generational thing right like email is kind of outdated and wayward we talked about this too about like business communication and things like that like not everybody's super well versed or comfortable um with email and there are a lot of pleasantries and such that have to be built into that just kind of as as um a, you know, part of the form like kind of in of itself so shooting a quick text and it more casually is you know within reason of course but i think it's yeah. a de definitely a, a, a win for a lot of students too um you know on that point i just wanted to you know we do focus mainly on um post-secondary institutions and that kind of side of education but i know a lot of k-12 um teachers are kind of using this slowly as well as you know younger teachers are graduating and such um just because i think you know the generational changes we see like three and five year olds using ipads now so um they're probably going to be able to you know really op um, navigate using these text messages um at these text typed features as opposed to going about sending an email so uh something for food for thought i think it's starting to get introduced especially at the high school level i think kind of at the junior high and elementary level it's a bit overkill and you know maybe that's not a great thing in terms of mental health management and you know psychological development and whatnot but it, yeah. you know so, so, something to think about as well that it is kind of percolating beyond uh you know, it's, it's kind of becoming a, a mainstream 
normalized form of communication for yeah, and you, you make a you make a good point even on the business communication side of things i i remember uh this past year i actually had students for the first time they did not even know how to email and uh it, was, it kind mm-hmm. of blew me away and i guess it's a generational thing again like they they've never had to even uh, communicate with email it was just always through text message or you know facebook messenger or what have you so uh, it'll be interesting to see the next generation. And, you know, previously, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, you did mention, like, why did you use your actual cell phone? So the, I mean, right. most of my personal um, devices, as we've talked about, uh, uh, I, I'm on the Apple ecosystem. So using iMessage, if I'm on my laptop or on my uh, iPhone or, you know, uh, even from an iPad's perspective, now that I got the iPad, um, it just, syncs up and uh, that allows me like if i'm working on something i can go and send off even large chunks on iMessage and so i didn't mind that i kind of missed that part right but it's not a big deal because if i ever need to what i do is just copy like i'll type it up on my computer and then put it into my uh, notes and then i copy that and paste it into the text plus if i have to do something overly long and i I probably should maybe even get a little bit better with the you know, acquainting myself with Siri so she can go and do all my, my text messages for me or something. <laughs> but it's a little bit hit and miss when it comes to like uh, even that audio recognition. Like even today I was trying to send my sister an email or I mean a text message and uh, you would think the AI would just pick up, like, hey, you want to go and send a message uh, here and they misspelled her name. And so luckily I caught it before it sent it out. Um, I guess as business people, Chris, like our realm of things often goes on to LinkedIn as well and, you know, Twitter and other things like that where you get private messages and things like that. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the, the messaging kind of side of things. Uh, I guess the last thing just to say would be like you know, the, the, the connection of all these different social media networks, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or, you know, there's kind of an overload of so many different things. But um the mental health side of it is definitely just make sure you unplug and make sure you kind of stick to uh you know what what's comfortable and what's appropriate you know maybe that, that that's some of the answers as well maybe the, the, the lesson here is that chris shouldn't be giving out his phone number not necessarily that he should be going to text plus <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good point i mean it's it's funny i um years ago one of my clients uh he and I would always joke with him too, because he actually had two cell phones and he still to this day, he has two cell phones. So one is on uh, Rogers and one is on TELUS. And the reason was uh, he was in the oil patch. And so, uh, you know, TELUS used to work that much better being in, you know, some rural areas or what have you, just because of the coverage. And then the, the Rogers was typically a little bit better just to, you know, cross country and stuff. But, uh, you know, I would always joke with him that, you know, you do know that the only people that carry around two cell phones are drug dealers. (laughs) You'd always chuckle. And uh, it's kind of like the same thing. Like, I mean, why would you need like another number? But I I think that segregation, I mean, I I took your advice and I I think it actually does help because otherwise, um, especially as it would show up right on my computer as I'm working away, uh, there would be no separation. And uh, now I can actually go and, uh, you know, have that separation. Uh, I can also turn off my notifications that are coming up on my phone while I'm working and have that set time. Because from a productivity standpoint, it's proven multitasking cannot 
uh, is not uh, the most efficient way. And we can't, I mean, it, the only way that you can multitask is if you're doing two completely separate things. Uh, so let's say, for example, if I was, um, you know, uh, doing some sort of household chores plus listening to a podcast that you can do. But if you are doing two tasks that require uh, your brain and, uh, you know, cognitive abilities, you cannot do it. So, uh, you know, th these are things that, uh, again, I mean, that's where I, I, I think with um, that work-life balance and now like working from home, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that people are finding. But uh, even from any, uh, responding to emails, we probably have talked about this before, but you should have set times. You know, maybe it's uh, in the morning, afternoon, and then, you know, later on, uh, late afternoon or what have you, right? And just have those uh, those periods where you just start hammering it through because you'll be that much more efficient. Whereas if you start doing, you know, one message here, one there, it's uh, your day is going to get broken up. And then if you reflect back on it, you'll think, well, what did I complete today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. So I guess the last kind of thing I wanted to mention before we move on here and go on to our next topic. Um, I think the, the thing about the um, text plus in any of these apps, whatever app you choose to use, as Chris mentioned, it not only can you disable the notifications on your device as a whole, but you can also go into your settings and disable notifications just for the app. Um, so I guess, kid, if to me, this is more of a high school teacher using this kind of approach might want to do, but you know, I'm not going to answer anything after X amount of you know time, right? So like you 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 have me up until like five or six p.m. on you know every day, and then I'm gonna shut that off. So maybe that's when you turn off your notifications um, and whatnot. I mean that's appropriate for anybody really want really wanting to do that, and maybe that's good for just any productivity management as well. And then the last thing is that 199 that we were talking about. We're not trying to push Text Plus or anything. We're not getting sponsored, but uh, you know <laughs> on any of these uh, platforms that are freemium with any of those kind of they they typically run in that range of you know low cost. That could essentially, I mean, even though it's kind of Wi-Fi dependent, could replace your cellular phone, right? Especially as you work from home. So uh, something to think about, maybe you don't need as many minutes and things like that. Maybe you don't actually end up, um, you know, relying on some of these cell phones going forward, depending on what your work situation is and what that looks like. Or maybe it replaces your home line. A lot of people have transferred that from the mobile to the, uh, or from the landline to the, the mobile already. So. I don't think this is a necessarily an, another big stretch considering you get that long distance in built in. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, especially with uh, Canada is one of the highest costs for cellular, um, you know, uh, telecommunications. So, uh, you know, th this could be, especially since you don't, you're not out and about as much and you're always, uh, I mean, even now from the Wi-Fi perspective, there's companies like Shaw here in Alberta that just right across Calgary, they're going and blanketing the entire uh, city with Wi-Fi. So if you're a Shaw customer, you could have access to it. So, uh, you know, instead of paying, let's say maybe $100 or even $80 a month, now you could be down to like a couple of dollars a month, um, right? So, uh, and, uh, you know, even beyond that, there's other like uh, voice over IP type of um, services there as well. But the, the thing, with some of them, they, I think the biggest, um, and I have used some of them in the past too, is uh, the tech side of things. The, it's uh, usually it's usually just more voice-based, right? So now having that tech side of things, I think that's where it's really nice. And uh, you can also, uh, by the way, with this Text Plus, I was also, like it gives you a phone number at first, but then you can go and change it one time without having to pay a fee. 
And so my number was actually pretty decent digits. Uh, you know, it's easy to remember. Yeah, it's an interesting service. It kind of reminds me a little bit about having a, well, this is a long time ago, but having a Skype number back in the day. And as you two were talking, I was thinking, I think I have a Skype number somewhere, but I don't know where I put it or what it is. It's probably under one of my accounts. But I guess the benefit with Text Plus is that if that number gets, well, if it gets burned, that burner number, then you can go under the account and create a new one where if you have a Skype account, I don't know if you can switch out your Skype number for a new one under the same account, can you? I mean, I haven't looked into it for years, but back in the day, I actually had, I don't know, I thought it was like cool and fun. And so I, I had like a Toronto number and then I had like a, a California number, and maybe a New York number that was like worldwide or something. But I, I mean, it's unfortunate that even Microsoft, I mean, originally we were even chatting about this right before this started, but, uh, you know, eBay owned Skype. It's probably the most well-known web conferencing, video conferencing software platform out there. Microsoft bought it out. And for some reason, they just didn't invest. And in fact, uh, uh, the person who created Zoom used to work at Skype. And so here, you know, after when uh, the innovation gets a little bit stifled, uh, somebody sees, uh, gets a little bit frustrated with that. And now you've created your own competition. Instead, maybe they should have just listened to their own staff. So is this a good segue to our, our news section then, folks? That's what we have planned. So <laughs> Let's talk about, well, I mean, I think, I think it's good to go over some of the news to break up some of the tech tools. So the first news story to discuss, it's a global news story, is that uh, University of Regina is going to continue with remote learning into the winter term. So they made that decision already. Uh, the article here is from Global News Canada. Um, not a huge amount to say about it other than the fact that they've kind of made this decision. It's interesting though, because there has been, a, because people have had to teach remotely in the fall, you know, regardless if people wanted to do it or not, there's now an investment in time at the very least, probably money too, in all these online courses and online resources. So it kind of makes sense that they would do this because it doesn't throw their faculty and their their instructors under the bus so they have to prepare uh, or scramble to prepare online kind of at the last minute yeah no for sure and i i think i suspect like maybe some of the other institutions will probably start following suit i mean they, whether they do uh, decide to do it uh, remotely or not they're going to have to make that decision fairly soon just so that uh, the uh, faculty can go and plan accordingly. What I also think about all the time, I mean, even if someone has never taught online and it's not great, but they've, let's say, put all, as much as they can into it to be the best that they can. You've said this before, Chris, on the podcast, it takes a long time to develop an online course. It takes good to be, it takes a lot of time to be uh, comfortable in an online teaching environment. I certainly don't always consider myself an expert at it. Uh, I had a library session the other day that went really well. And then the one before that didn't go as well. And partly that's, you know, timing. If there was technical glitches and stuff like that, that's always something to watch out for. That's not as prevalent in a face-to-face -face environment, but it takes a lot of work to get comfortable looking into the dark void and the chat because you're not really getting that feedback. And if somebody has gotten really good at working on this stuff through the fall, it's kind of a shame to throw it all out in the winter semester, especially if they've had to build all these lectures, they've, did, they've done 
learning object creation. They've recorded stuff. I mean, I mean, unless they go to build an OER out of the goodness of their heart, it's kind of a shame to not use some of this. Well, I mean, I think I would still use some of the, the material. Like, why wouldn't you? Even if it went back to classroom, maybe now you don't have to go and, you know, reiterate that you just send uh, the students to whatever resource that you created, whether it's a video or some audio or maybe some written form or what have you. But um, it was kind of interesting, maybe even just on a little side note, I'll tell you uh, an experience that I had this past week. And I've had students, for whatever reason, even though I've actually clearly laid out and color coded uh, for my business communications course, and actually we've all done this uh, because it's actually a course that's taught amongst uh, multiple instructors. So we have green for synchronous, we have blue for assignments that are due, and we have red for readings. And I've had for the last two weeks, students show up for the Google Meet, they start texting me saying, hey, when's our class? And I don't even have a synchronous class for that time. And um, I think there's a lot of uh, discrepancy in terms of how different instructors are doing uh, things with their classroom. So a lot, I, I, I'm under the impression, especially after uh, this last week, uh, what happened was I had three students uh, that were in a Google Meet. So one of them actually emailed me and said, hey, if you're available, can you just pop in? And I mean, I am available. That's uh, the schedule time. I just wanted them to go and focus in on their readings and work through the exercises. So I, I hopped on and I guess that there's a lot of people that are just doing live lectures, which I'm not saying that there's anything you know right or wrong about it, but uh, they basically, when you're having like, let's say three to four or five classes and the majority of them are all doing these live lectures, then they're questioning, well, why aren't you doing that? And, uh, you know, at, at the end of it, even though like I've actually taught this same course now online in spring and now we've iterated and, and that kind of thing. And it, it was funny because, again, I think this is where when you look at it, different people, they learn whether it's uh, by reading, by uh, visually, maybe from listening. Um, even I told, told them, it, even if you were in the classroom with me, I would not go and reiterate everything that's in the, the textbook. There's, I find there's no value of regurgitating the entire textbook. Basically, these students, what they're trying to do is show up so that they don't have to read. And it's almost like an audio book or something in class. And so uh, what I would do is usually focus in on the most important concepts. But you make a great point. I mean, continuing on, right? I mean, I've, I've sent you a bunch of my library instruction videos. You were very kind to give me good feedback. That was not my intent, but I did appreciate it. And it's funny because a lot of library instruction is technical. So there's a nuts and bolts aspect, which is how to use search interfaces which is probably the drier part of a library session, but also very important because once you master some of those concepts, they work across. It's a, it, has, it pays dividends, but it's more interesting to run a live class, face-to-face -face or otherwise, where you tackle questions or uh, maybe about more complex research questions, or I'm doing a lit review because I'm uh, in a fourth year class. Maybe this person's an honor student now. I was writing an email to a student the other day 
and they had a bunch of questions. Here's what I've tried to search. Here's my topic. I'm having a really tough time finding things. To the student's credit, they had done a lot of the work and said, here's what I've tried. I've really tried and I'm struggling. Can you help me? And they outlined everything that they did, but I could see where they went wrong. Normally I'd have to write this essay back. And I've written this essay back to people about the steps that you should do to revise your question through search multiple times. And I just, I didn't have to write that because I've made these very comprehensive videos on search interfaces and I've put them on YouTube. So they're available to everybody. Uh, I can link some in the show notes and they are chapter marked. So you don't have to go through the whole thing. YouTube has a phenomenal very easy to use new feature that was in beta for a long time, but now it's now it's in full feature, which is you can have chapter markers both in the description and along the timeline of the video. So they just need to go to the section that's most relevant to them. I said, here's a couple of things that I would think about. All of this is outlined in this video. So all the time that I spent making that resource has already paid for itself in the three student emails that I would have to write like that, that those take so much time to communicate to people over over our, the written word and it's not that i don't mind doing it it's just this is better for them because they can re-watch that video as many times as they need to and i said if you then have trouble then we can have an appointment and now when they come to my appointments because they've seen uh, recordings i've done or i've you know found existing things and provided it to them they're super prepared so our appointments are much more fruitful and we get into more advanced conversations about uh, you know, how, how to do better research and stuff like that. So I think recording everything is going to be my new goal. Yeah, no. And I mean, it's good to have those resources, right? Like at the end of the day, I'm not against it. I, I, I think you should probably have like a, you know, whether it's some people are going to be better off just reading. Uh, so you can go and send them some sort of, you know, detailed summaries. Some people even, it's funny, like for the longest time uh, back, uh, I think uh, an episode previously, I talked about how I used to go and give my uh, lectures in mind maps and, and that kind of thing. And some students didn't like it. So one of the things that I do is even though I don't like the design of the publisher slides, I throw those up uh, as resources as well. Uh, especially when you're using a textbook, because some people like those slides, even though they're literally summarizing the same stuff that's already in the textbook. It's verbatim the actual illustrations or figures that might be in the textbook as well. But, you know, everybody learns differently. And I think that's one of the things, especially for online learning, is that it takes a lot of discipline to be successful. And unfortunately, we're all kind of thrown into this. I mean, I've been teaching online for several years, so it's it's a little bit different for me, but most people like, you know, learning online, teaching online, it requires uh, some training. We haven't been, go, uh, we haven't gone through that. So I, I still describe this as uh, emergency remote delivery. Um, there's going to be somewhat of an inconsistency, but that's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, as long as you're willing to put in the work ethic, uh, the dedication, perseverance, and I would highly encourage all students to actually communicate as well, may, uh, you know, with their instructors if they're facing some sort of issues. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just one of those uh, aspects that we're all in this together. I, I mean, I'm, I'm literally describing this as that we're on this roller coaster and there's going to be highs and lows. And, uh, you know, the destination is that we'll get through this and finish the actual course. But, uh, you know, it's a, you have to take some time and just to enjoy the journey as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it ties in well what you said about, uh, you know, with like mental health aspects and, and being able to be available for students because this is new to a lot of people. I hope that after, after this though, that there are uh, perhaps a, a broader digital literacy for online learning because people have had to go through some of it. So perhaps that's a, that's a positive. There is another article we have. It's kind of, um, it's an interesting story that came from CNN. It's, it's more of a K to 12 focus, focusing on the, the cost that families or parents are enduring as a result of remote online teaching. So they talk about everything from, uh, well, school access to daycare for many people. So learning at home, uh, is difficult in terms of, especially if the parents are also working at home at the same time, the cost of setting up kind of equivalent access to resources, uh, that they wouldn't, that students would get in a classroom, but now the, the, the families are having to set up kind of like a, almost like a desk workstation with all the equipment, either for high school kids or elementary school kids, uh, kind of all of this stuff. And, and not to mention probably the technology costs that go along with that, right? Like having access to a, a better internet connection and their own computer. It's interesting that, uh, families are going to have to burden so much of the extra cost as a result of kind of the K to 12 move to online learning. And I think that's something that, you know, perhaps we don't always think about. We take for granted that people always have access to a computer or all this technology. And it's just not the case. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I mean, that's, that's one thing for sure that uh, people, uh, even as instructors, we need to be mindful of that uh, sometimes students might not have access to that technology and or maybe something has gone awry in the, the uh, home environment. And then we only have really one other article, I think, to discuss, Chris. And it was it's not even really a news article, but it's an interesting piece <laughs> written on the Microsoft blog. Uh, it's by Alexa Joyce, who's the director of education and skills at uh, at Microsoft. And the title of the article is Reimagining education, creating connections in the hybrid classroom. It's kind of an interesting piece. It goes through a, a few sections. So they talk about pedagogical innovation, uh, creating and maintaining interpersonal connections, access still matters, evaluation and evolution through data and analytics, training the trainers. So how to train educators to be more effective online teachers. I mean, a lot of this is a big plug for Microsoft's. Uh, team, Microsoft Teams for education and some of their 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 online uh, cloud resources and and video conferencing resources. But it's kind of interesting that Microsoft is identifying the problems that we've known about in remote education and the and kind of the lack of skill set for people to carry it out in an effective manner. Yeah, and I mean it, it'll be interesting in the future, especially now that I mean this is one big experiment for everybody to see what works and what doesn't. And once we do return back into the classrooms, I I think uh, there might be a bit of a hybrid, right? It's the same thing. Like you know, I've read some articles now uh, with people they're discovering working from home is very efficient, and I I think the new model is going to be in the the future is maybe a hybrid of that as well. Maybe you work three to four days in the office and then you have like, you know, one or two days where you get to work at home or from a cafe. So there'll be a little bit more of a blended type of uh, both from a work standpoint, plus even schooling. You make a really good point about the hybrid model too. I'm a big fan of it because 
so, so one of the things I've always liked about face-to-face -face education that's very difficult to replicate online is this the physical connection and the community that you meet with people. But on the other hand, online learning, like you said, requires, especially if it's self-paced and asynchronous, Chris, requires a lot of that discipline. And I like the idea of learning, giving people both of those skills. So they leave with meeting people, having a connection, having face-to-face -face learning, but then they're also responsible outside of the classroom. I, I wonder sometimes if a blended approach does a better service to students because surely if they want to continue with learning, it's not, I mean, I mean, people move away. I mean, they often move to cities to go to, to uh, go to universities, but maybe they move to a small town and set up a a legal shop and they want to do continuing education. Well, I think a lot of the opportunities to do that are going to be online, right? So it's makes sense for lifelong learning. And I, I don't like that term because it seems so incredibly obvious, but that getting people or giving people the skills and helping them build the skills to kind of be more personably, personally accountable in an asynchronous environment is a, is a lifelong benefit. Well, and, uh, you know, again, this is where I, I've even been telling students, I've been encouraging many of them to take as many courses as possible, because this isn't, you know, everybody's kind of looking at the the negative aspects. I mean, I'm a kind of glass half full type of a guy and uh, look at some of the opportunities here. The, when else will you get the chance to go and take your classes at any time that you want? And you can complete your assignments at two or three in the morning. You can, you know, as long as it fits within your schedule. But what I've been finding, because not everybody can cope with the stress, right? I look at like, for example, Christopher, who's uh, with us, he's teaching, I mean, working full time. Plus he's also taking courses full time, right? And uh, so, but he's very disciplined. And sometimes I wonder how much he actually sleeps and I, I fear for his health, but, uh, you know, at, at the at the same time, there's other people that are maybe the opposite where they're like, well, maybe I'll just take a couple of courses. I don't know how this online thing is going to work out. I mean, even one of the articles that you uh, saw that we were considering talking about was that there might be a massive dropout rate and people are going to find that maybe the online isn't the best way to, for them to learn. But uh, again, if especially for those students that have only a year left, this is a chance where you can go and do it at your own pace. I mean, I, I think I might've talked about this previous uh, in previous episodes, but I had found in spring, which was a, you know, uh, intensive six weeks. I discovered when I was doing one-on-one -on -one consultations with uh, for their group projects that I had three students that were taking five courses. One was even working full-time plus taking five courses. And I'm sure it's crazy to go and take that much from a workload perspective, but you literally finished half a, a year in a month and a half. And especially when, when people aren't necessarily able to have a lot of employment because there's been a shutdown, you can put that time to really good use, right? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I get a lot of questions from students, even those who I've, who've graduated in my time at Mount Royal about uh, online learning. And I said, you know, that the more you get used to us, the better, because all the, all the continual education that I do is online learning. I mean, every time I need to learn how to code, I go to LinkedIn learning, which used to be lynda.com or, or a comparable platform. It, it's interesting too, that in this, this blog post 
by Microsoft, and we'll, we'll, we'll put both of these in the show notes, that they also link to their uh, Education Center website, which I hadn't really gone through in detail. I think this has been up for a long time, but I hadn't really looked at it that closely. And it's all about how to set up your hybrid classroom. And they have a section for K-12 and higher education. And they have free resources on setting up a classroom, of course, using Microsoft services. I mean, they're not going to be advertising how to use Zoom, but it's still very, very applicable in terms of here's how you set up a class. Here's how you uh, communicate with people. Here's how you promote engagement. Here's how here's all, here's all the resources that you need to send to your students so that they know how to use the tools like Microsoft Teams and stuff like that. It's just unbelievable the resources that are out there. So if you're setting up a, a course online for the first time, particularly if you're doing live lectures or asynchronous, most of the companies now have a page that has best practices on how to do that and they you know they have all the analytics on how to use these video conferencing software so i mean it's just a phenomenal resource for people to access the last thing i think we were going to discuss in our news isn't really an article but it was just a follow-up uh from our back to school episode so if you haven't listened to our back to school episode uh, you absolutely should chris and i go into uh, excruciating detail on all the best tech for both students and instructors for back to school could would be applicable both to k-12 and higher education but since that uh episode apple has had a announcement so they do several announcements a year two or three to announce new products uh, the September announcement is interesting. It's typically their iPhone announcement. This year, it wasn't. There still may be another September event. Apple doesn't give a lot of notice on these. I suspect it'll be October. So this is the first year that, that I can remember where Apple has not un unveiled a new iPhone, which isn't particularly interesting for education. Instead, their event was all about the Apple Watch and the iPad. So I'll put a link to the event on YouTube. Um, it's an interesting event. It was an async synchronous but live event uh, unveiling all their new products and the only thing I wanted to follow up on was the iPad since you and I had a fairly in-depth discussion about what is the iPad good for what is the best model to buy and there was some interesting updates so I think I had recommended because of the back to school event with the free airpods I'm not even sure if that's still on anymore I think maybe that I had recommended the iPad Air third generation as, uh, as the way to go. And I still stand behind that if you're able to get it or even if you're able to get a refurbished version, that's a good deal. Apple updated the iPad Air, so it's very much like the iPad Pro and the price now reflects that. So the price is quite high, though you get the second generation Apple Pencil that's magnetic and all these bells and whistles. I think the most exciting announcement from this is that they updated their base level iPad, which is uh, in Canada, it's $329 in the States, $299 with education pricing, and then I think uh, $429 in Canada, and then $399 with education pricing. But they updated that base level iPad with a much better processor. That's pretty much all they did. The easiest update they could have done. But they updated it with a processor that's much newer, it lasts longer, it is far more powerful, and they have kept the price the same. So if you're in the market for a tablet, that is an even better deal at this point. Um, you lack a few things with that model. You lack a laminated display. 
And as I said in the previous episode, that means that if you're using the stylus, the Apple Pencil, it's a little bit weird on the entry-level iPad because there's a bit of an air gap between the glass of the display and the actual display itself. So you're not quite touching the pixels, so to speak. The trade-off, though, is that while that creates a little bit more reflection and it's perhaps a little bit less intimate of a drawing uh, experience, it's a lot easier to fix if you drop it. You're less likely to break uh, the screen entirely. It's just the cover glass needs to be replaced. So from a repairability and a student perspective, that's actually a really good value. Um, Great, great device. Uh, If you haven't bought an iPad, you're in the market for one, you don't want to spend a lot of money, I don't think you're going to miss the wide color gamut display. I don't think you're going to miss having a decent camera. Do people take pictures with the iPad? I thought that was super taboo. I don't think you're going to miss the newer Apple Pencil. It doesn't make a difference. I don't think you're going to miss having quad speakers or any of that either. I think this is a really good deal. Um, And if you need a companion device so you can draw stuff out, I mean, I don't think there's a better deal in tech. Actually, on a side note too, uh, the other thing that came up was... um, I had one of my colleagues was uh, uh, just doing a live session like through um, Google Meet and was a- unable to actually view their comments because they only had one monitor. And so one of the things that I suggested to her and um, it was uh, it was just to go and either use a iPad so or a tablet or a smartphone, log in at the same time and then at least you could have this extra device which you might have already put it off to the side and then you have a, a basically a second screen where you can view those comments. That's a great suggestion to do it with a mobile device. It works really well on a phone. Keep your phone plugged in. It will kill the battery very quickly, uh, but you can turn off everything. And the nice thing about Google Meet too is that you can actually log in with uh, the Safari web browser on the iPhone and I believe Chrome on Android. You don't actually have to have the app. It, it is nice to have a small device to see the comments because I have logged in as myself twice so I can do that exact thing, but on a, on a computer or like a PC and the fans just go out of control. I mean, I think the, the computer gets like a hundred over a hundred degrees because it's trying to, now it's trying to render multiple video conferencing uh, instances at the same time. So I think a mobile device to do that is a really good idea. So now I think is a good time to move on to our EdTech tips. So this is the last section of this episode where we do uh, kind of a deep dive on various technologies, things that are useful to the class, things that we've learned since our last episode. So Chris, do you want to kick this off? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, especially if you're using the Google environment, so uh, one thing that you do not have access to in the traditional Google Meet for video conferencing is uh, actually having breakout rooms. And so one thing that I did, and I think maybe even uh, Eric, you did this uh, recently with one of your library sessions, but what I had was I did my actual Google Meet session, sent out the link to all the students. And during the session, I put everybody into groups. And then from there, I had them send me the Google Meet link that they're doing. And then I just popped in and out of the various group sessions that were going on. I know that there are Google Chrome extensions that can go and basically create that same uh, breakout room functionality that uh, Zoom has. But uh, personally, I don't like using Chrome. I actually don't even have it installed on my computer because I know Google just basically tracks everything. So uh, 
that's how I hacked the system and that's how I went around it. And I know uh, some of my colleagues, they actually had a full on session where they were exploring that Google Chrome extension. I think one of the other issues is if you do go that route, you have to make sure that all of your students and everybody using uh, that Google Meet session is using Chrome as well. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to have those breakout rooms with that Chrome extension. So um, how did your session go? Eric, with uh, your library session, it went pretty well. So with this particular one, I was in a, it was a psychology library session, and I the instructor had created some breakout rooms already, so the students were used to that. Uh, this is a Chrome extension. You're right. There's a couple out there, but the one that I used was uh, called Google Meet Breakout Rooms by Robert Hudek. So you can search if you search uh, Google Meet breakout rooms under the Chrome extensions library. It's like the top, the top result. It was updated. I don't know that students actually have to have this installed. I think what it does is, is that it creates breakout rooms and it kind of gives them a color. So like team red, blue, yellow, stuff like that. And then it creates a link. Um, and then you can paste that in your learning management system, your blackboard, your Moodle or whatever on a, on a page that people can always return to, to get those links. Um, I haven't worked with it super closely. I am going to try it. I have a library session coming up. I actually have seven sections of a library session coming up where I'd like to do some breakout rooms or something like that. Uh, just so students can talk about a research question and their search strategy in smaller teams without having, you know, the librarian listening to everybody and then they can bring back their questions from their breakout rooms kind of to the broader group the interesting thing with google meet i don't know if this has been an issue for instructors i know it has been for me google meet links uh only persist for 90 days and that's assuming that you've logged in i've actually had a couple of google meet meet links break fairly recently like within a week after creating them so i think one of the things that these these extensions may try to get around is those links expiring. So if you have a consistent link for your class that all your students get to, uh, you kind of have to have, you have to keep using that link to keep it working. So even if you're not using an extension and you're just creating them, you know, the links manually, I don't see that, that you need to make an extension. One tip that I've learned is that you'll want to make some sort of uh, meeting with yourself that uses those links so you can log into them on a regular basis so they remain persistent. Uh, I have a I have a consistent leak, a link for appointments that students can use for me for virtual uh, library session appointments, uh, one-on-ones. And I log into that link every Friday morning that I because I've set a reoccurring meeting with myself so that link doesn't die. Uh, this is only really a problem if you're going to use the, the breakout rooms or the links, uh, consistently, if it's a one-off for one class, it's not really a problem, but there are some things that you can do, uh, to keep that link alive. I think if it's scheduled in your Google calendar, the Google meet link will persist for 30 days and then onward if you've logged into it. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding too, Eric, is that as long as you create it in your calendar and then, you know, you add in that Google meet link and it's a recurring event that that link will persist. 
So does it have to be a recurring event? Because the way I tried it before, I, I thought I was really smart, tried to game the system. So I made like an, a, a meeting with myself for like 2025 and then like Google <laughs> saw through that immediately. <laughs> that link broke. They were thinking, this guy's never going to meet. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that was what was uh, told to us for Mount Royal through the Academic Development Center uh, when we were back in spring. So I've just followed that and that's how I've kept like the recurring one. But um, I mean, it's interesting, even on the Zoom side of things uh, last week or actually this week, we just had uh, a class for our Haskell School of Business and unbeknownst to me, like my previous link was still live. So I had some students in from the previous week in that room and then the new link where we actually had a guest speaker. So I had like five or six students in the wrong class. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess it's one of those things I probably, what I should have done is, um, just sent a reminder just to the students. And well, when things get a little bit busy and sometimes, uh, I recall, especially the, the first week, I don't know how people do it, but uh, that first week I had two days straight of just doing zoom, Kind of like going over course outlines, expectations, assignments. By the end of that second day, I was just completely done and exhausted. And I think yeah. I passed out. And so I can, uh, you know, my heart goes out to all those people, both students, faculty, workers who have to, you know, it's kind of like that Apple commercial, that Zoom fatigue, it is alive and well out there. So. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I find if I have back to back teaching, it's hard over zoom. That's one of the reasons why like you, Chris, I'm standing. And I have a I'm fortunate that I that I have a motorized standing desk at home. I bought that this year. Uh, because it's the only way I can replicate the standing and moving around that I would do in a face to face classroom. It actually does relieve a lot of this because I'm not as dead by the end of the day, but it is it is exhausting. Well, it's funny, even Christopher even told me because I've now tried it sitting down and standing up and my voice just projects better. I think my energy shows or it gets conveyed or communicated a lot better just by standing. So it's uh, it's kind of nice just doing that. And, I, I, you know, thanks to him, he made the suggestion. I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but uh, just to get a mic stand that I'll have that option. Yeah, and it's kind of like if you think about it, you know how uh, you might have heard this saying about you can tell if somebody's smiling even in a phone conversation, right? Like it it does carry through. I mean, it, I mean, you guys are seeing me right now like I am actually like, you know, this is one thing that I do look forward to, uh, even though I'm like pretty swamped. But, you know, this is my creative outlet or one of the things. So it, it just that uh, that energy does just flow through, right? When you are going and smiling and, you know, nodding or whatever. I also say that standing is the best for teaching and uh, an uh, equivalent that does not work is sitting on a physio ball because sometimes I sit on a physio ball as my chair to kind of mix things up. And uh, yeah, that's no good because I tend to bounce around and the students were all trying to speculate because of course they couldn't see the physio ball and they, they were like, is he on a marshmallow? Is he on like one of those like kids things or like bounce around? They're just like, what could it be? So they didn't pay attention at all to what I was talking about, but they were commenting a lot on what I might be sitting on. They're like, maybe it's a person. It's pretty funny. Uh, the, the second tech tip today uh, is pretty straightforward. This is actually a tip that I got from uh, Peter Houston. Peter Houston is the our archivist uh, at Mount Royal University Library. And he's been doing a bunch of 
recordings of his instruction like I have. Um, but because he's not on a Mac, so he's not using the same things. And I, I tend to talk a lot about Mac tools. I know Chris and I both do because I think we're all working on Macs. So I try to be cognizant that a lot of people are working on Windows. There's nothing wrong with Windows, but I get used to using the built-in tools on a Mac. So I think we've recommended in the past, if you want to do screencasting, I mean, if you're using a Mac, uh, QuickTime. QuickTime is an amazing tool. It does screencasting videos. There's lots of ways to do picture in picture. Uh, you know, Chris, you can probably speak more to this, but like having a Zoom uh, meeting with yourself. But if you want to record, do screen, reca uh, screen recording and record a, a PowerPoint presentation or a keynote presentation, and you don't want to trust the presentation software to record everything because it can break, uh, this is a tool code called OBS or Open Broadcast open broadcaster software. So it's available on Windows, Mac, and Linux. So it's totally platform agnostic. I haven't produced a, a product with it, but my, my colleague uh, Peter has, so I can link to one of his videos uh, in, in the show notes, perhaps. He doesn't know that, but he'll find out soon. And it's kind of cool because you can record your screen, but you can also have a picture in picture where you can record yourself. So if you wanted to have your facial expressions and everything, plus a PowerPoint or a demonstration above, uh, you can do that. And it's uh, it's super slick. I mean, apparently Twitch streamers use it, gaming streamers. So if it's good enough for them, I would imagine it's good enough for a lot of people, but it's a really interesting uh, piece of software. So big thanks to Peter for pointing it out. Uh, so that about wraps it up for this episode of EdTech Examine. Thanks a lot, Chris and Christopher for joining us today. Chris, do you wanna go first? Yeah, so you can get a hold of me. Uh, my website uh, is Chris with a K, so chrishans.ca. Uh, my Twitter handle is the same, and uh, my company is marketgrade.com. I'm Eric Christensen, and you can contact me at ericchristensen.net. That's Eric with a K, ericchristensen.net. Uh, you can contact me through Twitter at egchristensen. And then uh, most of my writing and blogging is done at my tech blog, which is techbytes, tech-bytes.net. And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. Guys, I'm just going to wait for Chris to return. Sorry guys, <laughs> my dogs are just like, they're like, I, I don't know if you guys can hear them, they're like wrestling right now for whatever reason.
It sounds like that part of aliens where they, they can't see the aliens yet, but they can hear it in the rafters. So you're going to be okay. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. You want to add to that? Or <laughs> nope. Sorry, sorry. My dogs are like wrestling under my desk. I love it. Because <laughs> they're all going at the end of the episode. Dog wrestling. Yeah.